read in the Gospel according to Mark. And we will read in chapter 8, chapter 8, Verse 31, 31st verse of the 8th chapter of Mark. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake the saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But he turning about and seeing his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou mindest not the things of God, but the things of men. And he called unto him the multitude with his disciples and said unto them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever would save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save it. Chapter 9 and verse 35. Chapter 9 and verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he saith unto them, If any man would be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. Chapter 10 verse 26 And they were astonished exceedingly, saying unto him, Then who can be saved? Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we've left all and followed thee. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. Verse 42 of the same chapter. And Jesus called them to him, and saith unto them, Ye know that they who are accounted to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whosoever would become great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever would be first among you shall be servant of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now it seems the scene in that we're going to compete against the aircraft. 
but we'll really trust the Lord. Now, <clears throat> tonight, um, I will have to go over a little of what we said last week, and I'm not making any apology for that, because in actual fact, I think that what we said upon the key of this gospel according to Mark could be said not once, but again and again with very real value and helpfulness. You will remember that we have said that the key to this gospel um, according to Mark is found in the pa last passage that we read together in Mark chapter 10 from verse 42 to 45 and especially the 45th verse the Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's really the key to this gospel according to Mark. In fact, we have here in this book the whole character and nature of divine service set forth. And especially as it is expressed and exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God the Son, who became the servant of the Lord, that he might redeem us and bring us into the joy of God's service. Now there's a tremendous amount that we could say. And we have to leave that because we have said quite a lot uh, in uh, this matter, introducing this matter of the key to the gospel according to Mark. But there are one or two points I would like to um, underline. Many people would agree that the emphasis of the gospel according to Mark is Christ as the servant of the Lord. But they would say that, of course, that is connected with his being the Son of Man. It is perhaps the most extraordinary thing that this gospel begins, if you want to read it, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 with these simple but profound words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, this gospel begins with the revelation of Jesus, the Messiah, as God the Son. And then reveals him as the servant of the Lord. Now it is perfectly right to connect the fact that the Lord Jesus is the Son of Man with uh, his being the servant of the Lord because we have it in uh, Philippians and chapter 2 and verse 5 in that very, very well-known uh, passage which we have quoted already um, in past studies. Verse 6, Who existing in the form of God counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of 
a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. So it is not wrong from one point of view uh, to say that the Lord Jesus, uh, we always think of him as the son of man when we think of him as the servant of the Lord. But I want to say this, that I do not believe any of us can really discover the secret of true service till we have had it revealed to us that it is God the Son who becomes the servant of the Lord. In other words, I believe we have the most astounding and marvelous revelation in this gospel according to Mark of the heart and character and nature of God himself. In Matthew we saw God as king. In Mark we see the other side of the coin. We see God as servant. Now very few people can believe that God could be a servant. But God, his nature being love, service is the spontaneous, natural, normal outcome. It is his nature to give himself. It is his nature to care for others. It is his nature to serve. It is his nature to keep and guard with undying faithfulness. I say that that is the most extraordinary revelation that you can find anywhere in the Bible. To see God as king, to see God as omnipotent, to see God as ruler of all. We understand that. We associate that with God. But why is it that most of us have this um, argument with God over service? Isn't it that we think he's some great autocrat, some great despot, someone who sits up there who doesn't understand what we go through? We feel that there he is sitting on some great throne of the universe, sort of just saying, now all of you, you're to be my slaves. You're to grovel at my feet. You're just to do exactly what I want you to do. If I say, go, you go. And if I say, come, you come. You just do exactly what I say. And that's the idea many of us have got. But God isn't like that. God is the greatest servant in the universe. If I may say reverently in the presence of God, he can hardly help himself. His nature being love. He doesn't think it out. He's not technical. He's not a bit of mach machinery. He, he's not an automaton, a great computer. That somehow or other just thinks it all out and says, no, I'll do this and I'll do that. But being love, it is quite spontaneous. He loves us. When he created all things, he wanted someone to enjoy it. That's why he created man and put him in the midst of it all. Well, whatever name you give to it, whether you call it the self-giving nature of God, or whatever it is, the fact of the matter is this, that written into the very fabric of God's being is this matter of service. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. It's not just that we see Jesus as the Son of Man. We do, and gloriously so. We see him in his humanity. 
But in the gospel according to Mark, it is the revelation of God himself in Christ as the servant. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, many commentators would have loved to have changed it to Son of Man. It would have fitted in so much better with our whole understanding of service, our whole understanding of um, this gospel, as, as setting forth Jesus as the servant of God, the servant of the Lord. Well, that's one thing I want to say. And say with as much force as I'm capable of, I think, that when we have seen that God serves, when we see that it is the very nature of God to give himself to serve, our whole concept of service dramatically and completely changes. We undergo a revolution. God doesn't ask you to do something that he doesn't do. On the other side, let me say this. God doesn't want anyone to enter his servant or become a servant of his who is not prepared to have the same character as lies behind his service. So really, as we said last week, the title to this gospel could well be that little phrase found twice in the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 42, and I think it's uh, verse uh, 11 or something like that, verse 1, and also in um, Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13, Behold my servant. If I wanted a title for this uh, gospel, that's what I would give to it. Behold my servant. And therein lies the whole key to this book. For you see, wherever we look in the gospel according to Mark, as most of you seem to have grasped, uh, at least those who have answered the questions, we have just one long consistent flow of service. Everywhere we look, it's activity. Everywhere we look. It's incessant service. The Lord pouring out his life from beginning to end. Eleven occasions we're told that he had to get away just for a moment. And even when he got away, the crowd streamed out. He didn't turn them away. He met them and went on serving them. It is the most extraordinary um, picture that is presented to us. And it is more than that. Uh, we have here in this uh, gospel all the great acts and signs of the Lord. The, the, the whole gospel, as it were, is littered with miracles and signs. Mark was very much taken with that. He wasn't taken so much with the discourses and parables of the Lord, but he was tremendously taken with the acts and the signs and the miracles, the wonders that the Lord Jesus performed. And whenever we look, we find that. The evidence of service, the evidence of love, the evidence of concern, and that is, after all, a little deeper than service. Because, you see, I have said I would entitle this gospel with this phrase from Isaiah, Behold my servant. Why? 
because I don't think we shall ever understand what God means by service by beholding the service. We understand what God means by service when we behold the servant. And when you think about it, it is the servant that determines the quality of the service. So many of us would read, superficially read Mark, and we would be thrilled with all the mighty works and mighty signs and miracles, and, so, and we would stop there and say, now this is what this should be, this is what we should have, and so we ought to expect that God will work in exactly the same way. Jesus himself said, greater works shall you do than these. So let us be quite clear on that. He's not, his service hasn't finished. The Lord Jesus Christ is still the servant of the Lord working through us. But uh, if we only look at the service, we shall come, to put it colloquially, unstuck. We must look at the servant. And what do we find as we look at the servant? We find immediately something that I think is just simply tremendous. We find that here is someone who's not just carrying out his service in a kind of uh, dutiful sense of vocation that many a servant of the Lord has fallen into. We don't find anyone who's just gritting his teeth and going through with it. Instead, we find the most extraordinarily compassionate service, a sensitivity to the needs of human beings, an involvement with men and women, which is quite incredible. That's why we need to behold the servant, for that, again to put it colloquially, gives the game away. That's the kind of man he is. No, just wait. That's the kind of God he is. There is nothing cold or distant about his service, nothing merely dutiful about his service. Here is someone who is intensely involved. But we have to go deeper than that in beholding the servant of the Lord, as I think we said, um, were, uh, before we have to behold him if we would understand the deepest secret of service we must behold him in his passion and that's why the gospel of Mark gives over over a third of its material to the Lord's last week on this earth for you see here we have the very heart of divine service laid bare Calvary is the eternal principle of divine service. Well, again, we, can't, we mustn't say too much. I want to go on now about that. But what I want to underline here is this very important point upon, upon which we could spend the whole evening. The secret of service is not living. It is dying. I remember some years ago when I went to Sweden, a young man came up to me afterwards and asked about something that had been said 
And I never thought it, uh, it's gone all over the place since then, I never thought about it at the time. I just turned round to him, and we had very little time, I had to rush to catch a plane, and I just said to him as I was getting into the car, the problem is not living, the problem is dying. I didn't know that that little comment God was going to use to change his whole attitude to the Christian life. But that's it. Our problem is not how to live the Christian life. Our problem is how to die. That's the point. If we could only get the secret of dying, God will take care of the living. Once we can, we can understand what it is to lay down our lives, once we can let go, once we can lay aside our own glory, whatever it may be, once we can really learn the secret of the cross, then God takes over all the resurrection follows like day does night. But most people are terribly bothered about how to do the thing, how to get this, how to get hold of that, how the, the sort of technique of service, how to live and all the rest of it. But uh, at the risk of being called a mystic, the fact remains that Calvary is the secret to service. There is no other secret. And it was this that the Lord Jesus learnt so deeply. Because, as I think, again, we have underlined, he died daily, long before he came to Calvary. His whole life was a denying of himself. When Jesus said, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, it was a principle of his very being. But it is more than even that. This principle of the cross is inherent within the nature of God. There would have been no incarnation, no incarnation, if it were not so. That the Lord Jesus was able to humble himself, that he was able to become poor, that he was able to be restricted to a span of human flesh, that he could allow himself to be dependent on a sinful woman, that he became a little child like any other little child. This is the cross in the life of Jesus. Long before ever he came uh, to Calvary. And that's why, since God has this kind of character, he demands the same kind of character in those who would be his servants. Now there are many who say they serve the Lord and they don't. They may appear to serve the Lord, I say it against myself too, but we don't. Only God knows those who really are his servants and the key to it is this. If we have got the same kind of character in us that was in the Lord Jesus, have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Well, we've read those uh, words. We've also read those words in Mark 8, 34 and 35. 
And those also the verse in chapter 9, verse 35, all this is just what I'm talking about. God demands this kind of character of us if we're going to serve him. But I can add two others out of a vast wealth of material. John, in other parts of the Bible, in John chapter 12 and verse 24, we read these words. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. He that loveth his life loseth it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If um, any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And then in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4, in that very well-known passage from verse 10, we will read, to, to verse 12, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. Now the lesson for us in all that we have so far said is that there can be no selfless, consistently selfless giving, no truly sacrificial service without a basic and essential laying down of our own life. In other words, you can get so moved in a meeting, you can get so moved in a meeting, that you can sort of say, I'll go to Timbuktu. And for a while you're carried along on the crest of a wave and off you are to Timbuktu, only a bit later to take back that call. And to take it for yourself. And only God knows how many there are in different parts of the world who are just now living for themselves and causing such a lot of trouble. If we should, would know a life of consistently selfless giving, of truly sacrificial service, there has got to be an essential laying down of our lives, not just in the moment of emotion, but coldly, deliberately, a laying down of our life before God. People say, how can I do that? It's an act of the will, as well as the emotion, whereby you give yourself wholly to God. God takes over the seeing that it's worked out, and he does. There's no one yet who's given themselves to the Lord in that way who doesn't know before long what it means. Any other kind of service is open to the corroding effects of self-interest and ambition. Oh, I know it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. 
People who for years will give themselves wholly to God unsparingly. But finally the corrosion of self-interest gets the upper hand. The cross is the only safeguard. Sooner or later, being what we are, the old principle of self-centeredness rears its ugly head and takes over. And so we get into that unhappy position where as a servant of the Lord we're simply using it for our own satisfaction, using it to mollify our own condition, using it somehow or other to alleviate our own conditions. That's not service. That's why there's got to be this basic and essential laying down of our own life. And that's why the principle of the cross it is an absolute necessity in God's service. The Holy Spirit refuses to commit himself to anything less than that. And that's why you can find some who are serving the Lord who've never known the anointing. The anointing's not there. Because the Holy Spirit refuses to anoint anyone who doesn't know this basic and essential laying down of their life. He will not touch it. This is a way of judging what some people call the anointing. The others just crass emotion. Just make crude and vulgar. But when God, the Holy Spirit, really comes upon a man or a woman for the service of God, it's because that life's been laid down. Somewhere there's been a letting go. Somewhere there's been a, there's been a laying aside of their own interests. And the Holy Spirit commits himself immediately. Don't any of you think for one single moment the Holy Spirit holds back. He will hold back not one whit longer than necessary. He longs for men and women to enter the service of God. And we see this so utterly clearly at the beginning of our Lord, Lord's ministry, Christ's ministry, in, in Mark chapter 1 from verse 9 to 11. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son. With thee I am well pleased. How beautifully simply it's put in Mark's gospel. You've got it all there. Christ's baptism precedes his anointing. Now wouldn't you have thought that being God the Son, being the one who uh, is the servant of the Lord, being without sin, being perfect, wouldn't you have thought that God would have anointed him immediately? No. Mark this order, this divine order. It was when the Lord Jesus went down into the waters of baptism and took his place there in those waters and was baptized of, of John the Baptist. And immediately as he came up, then the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit came out to find for the first time his permanent home on earth. 
Never had the Holy Spirit found his permanent resting place. Not through all the ages of time till Jesus went down into the waters of Jordan and was baptized of John. That moment, and I love the way Phillips puts it, the heavens were split open. The heavens were split open. And the Spirit came down like a dove. What does that mean? It means this. When Christ accepted the cross in principle, expressed in his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him, enduing him with power and authority for the service of God. Now, my dear friend, if the Lord Jesus Christ needed that endowment with power and authority, for service, and he was without sin, how much more do you and I? He who was born of the Spirit, he who had never sinned or rebelled in his life, if he needed the anointing, how much more you and I? When he was baptized, it wasn't for forgiveness of sin. It was that he took his place there accepting the cross in principle. And from that moment, the cross became operative in his life. From that moment on. Now, this is the very heart of the biblical meaning of being a servant. You see, quite honestly, when you talk about servants today, I have no, I have no doubt that most of us have got a, a quite cockeyed idea. Because servants are just not what they used to be. If we take the biblical idea of being a, a servant, what is it? A servant is someone who has given up, according to the Bible, the right to himself. We find this marvelously put in uh, Philip's version of Mark chapter 8, and verse 34 and 35. I will read it to you. If anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all right to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The man who tries to save his life will lose it. It is the man who loses his life for my sake and the Gospels who will save it. Or again, the New English Bible puts it like this. Anyone who wishes to be a follower of mine must leave self behind. He must take up his cross and come with me. Come with me. Leave self behind and come with me. Whoever cares for his own safety is lost. But if a man will let himself be lost for my sake and the Gospels, that man is safe. That not that marvellous? Service. The biblical idea of being a servant was this. In one sense, a servant has no life of his own, no will of his own, no time of his own, no money of his own, nothing of his own, no works of his own. All is his master's. All is his master's. He does all in the name of his master. That's a biblical slave or servant. He does all in the name of his master. He carries out his master's plan and will. He, he, 
He conscientiously watches over and completes the works of his master. And when everything is done, he gives all the glory to his master. Now that was a biblical servant. A biblical servant was actually almost a piece of furniture. It may sound awful, it wasn't as terrible as that, but he was owned by his master. He was actually owned by his master. Now, this was symbolically expressed in um, uh, the Old Testament by the piercing of the ear. Now, we've sung those hymns this evening, um, My Glorious Master, Prince Divine, isn't it? Or the other one, um, I Love, I Love My Master. Both of them speak about not going out free. And this is the whole picture we have in the Old Testament of the piercing of the ear. Here was someone who was, in actual fact, a servant who was owned by his master. And the time came round for his going out free in the seventh year. Every seventh year, the servant could go out free. If he wanted to give up his legitimate rights, his freedom his entitlement to a life of his own, the master took him to God, to the door of the house, and with an awl, he pierced his ear. From that time, <coughs> that servant was forever in the service of that master. He had freely, voluntarily, readily, given up his own rights to himself. He had given up his freedom. Now you've got this in Exodus and chapter um, 21. Exodus 21, I think it's 21, yes. And from verse 1 to 6, I will only just read from verse 2 to 6. If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he come in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he be married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master give him a wife, and she bear him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto God, and shall bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with them all, and he shall serve him forever. What does that mean? What a strange thing. Why bore through someone's ear? <laughs> Why not put a, a ring through his nose? <laughs> some parts of the world have some very strange customs. Why bore his ear? I'll tell you why. In the wisdom of God, it was the ear that should be bored through because you can't have a good servant if you haven't got his ear. It's as simple as that. If you haven't got his ear, he can be the most marvellous servant with the most marvellous pedigree, knowledgeable, zealous, devoted, and all kinds of other things, but if you haven't got his ear, he's no good. And that's the whole point of it. He may be zealous, he may be knowledgeable, he may be efficient, 
But if he's working out his own plans according to his own will and mind, even if he does it in the name of his master, it's all to no value as far as the master's concerned. How well I remember, although I shouldn't mention it, the time that once we had someone who was as deaf like that. What was the point? We were going to have unmentionable places in Narvik, blue and silver. Because there was no listening. Well, what's the point of having someone do a job if they don't do it according to the specifications that are wanted or needed? That's not service. <laughs> That's exhibitionism and self-satisfaction. That's not carrying out a job according to the master. That's out, carrying out a job for the master according to the servant's ideas. That's why an ear was pierced. Now, this giving up all right to himself, this utterness of sacrifice, this pierced ear, we again see so fully expressed in Christ as the servant of the Lord. There was no one who had a... who had more deeply given up the right to himself. There was no one who more completely fulfilled this meaning of the pierced ear than the Lord Jesus. You look at Hebrews and uh, chapter 10 and verse 5 and we read this. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body didst thou prepare for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come, in the role of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Now, look back to the reference, and you'll find one very impressive phrase that is left out. Psalm 40. Psalm 40 and verse 6. Psalm 40, verse 6. Sa here is the original quotation. Sacrifice and offering thou hast no delight in. Mine ears hast thou opened. <laughs> or dug is the Hebrew. Pierced. Pierced. Rotherham puts pierced. Moffat said, I would like to put cleaned out <laughs> which I think only a Scotsman <laughs> could think of mine ear hast thou cleaned out and this is exactly the idea don't just get away with some idea that it was pierced the idea was that the ear was unblocked so that it could hear the voice of God and could be obedient to the voice of God quite simple how much service there is that has no relation to the voice of God. If we knew something of the anointing in this way, if we only knew something, if we were only sensitive to the voice of God, how much we would be saved from. If we only had a pierced ear, an ear that's cleaned out, an ear that is, can hear, that's unblocked, that's opened. 
so that he can hear the voice of God. So many children of God don't even hear the voice of God. Yet the Lord Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The secret to service, to true service, is to be able to hear the voice of God. We find it again if you turn back actually to John, the gospel according to John, all this that we've been talking about, about the meaning of biblical service, you find it in two or three passages in John. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. Here it is. The will of him that sent me and to do his work. Not my will, not my work. His will, his work. Uh, chapter um, 5, verse 19 and 20. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I send you the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father doing. For what things soever he doeth, these the Son also doeth in like manner. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And greater works than these will he show him, that ye may marvel. And then again in chapter 9 and verse 4. Chapter 9 and verse 4. We must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Not my works, his works. It's the servant of the Lord again. Don't you think that it was really this character of service, this utterness of giving that lies at the heart of service that so struck the Lord in uh, the incident which is recorded in Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. Listen to it. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. More than all those who are contributing to the treasury. Not who have, but are contributing. The whole income of the treasury. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, her whole living. My friends, that's service. That is service. And that's why the Lord committed. That woman came nearer to the heart of true service than any one of the priests or Levites in the temple that day. Or any of those who were casting in their sums of money, great or small, even if there was sacrifice in it because she was the one nearest to the heart of God. He had given all, and she had. We can say a lot more, but I must rush on. You'll find some of it in the notes. I wonder, as an aside, whether this is the explanation for the repeated injunctions of the Lord Jesus, the commands of the Lord Jesus to people who were healed, not to tell anyone. And even in two instances, which you'll find in the notes, the references, where he told demons not 
to speak. Yet in another place, when the man who was in the tombs was, was wonderfully healed and delivered, he said to him, now you go and tell them what great things the Lord hath done for thee. And I'm sure when Jesus used the word Lord, he didn't mean himself, he meant the Father. In other words, against this question of service, it's not me, don't glorify me, don't shout my name around. It's the Father that's doing it. Well, that's only just a possibility. There are one or two other things we, I'd like to say as we close this evening. The first is what I've called the principle of sonship. I would like just to underline this once more. As we've already said this evening, some cannot see that Mark emphasizes Christ as servant because of these opening words in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Yet sonship, in God's mind, precedes, always precedes, true service and gives the character and quality to it. It is that divine and eternal relationship to God, that being born of God's Spirit, that having partaken of the divine nature, that uh, is the key to service. We don't serve in order to become sons. We serve because we are sons. Here is a paradox. Here is a paradox. But he's a divine paradox. God the Son became the servant. And so we as sons of God have got to become servants of the Lord. We're not just on a, a, a distant uh, basis of dutiful slavery. We are to be as free sons who willingly give up their freedom to become slaves of God in his service. The servants of all. I think our service is determined by the little uh, saying we have in English, like father, like son. That's it. Like father, like son. That's the key to this matter of sonship. Being sons, becoming servants. Fathers like that. So the sons are like that. This idea some people have got that one day in the kingdom to come, we're all going to sit on thrones and everyone's going to come and fall flat on their faces and sort of grovel at our feet. Uh, we wave a scepter over them. I've never heard of anything so utterly foreign to the mind of God. It is quite certain that we're going to be brought to the throne if we're prepared to suffer with him and let him educate and instruct and train us. But not for that. God hasn't saved us so that he can just sit there to have all people just sit standing around admiring. That's not the nature of God. nature of God is that we should come to the throne in order to serve, to administer his government, to care for the rest. Well, there we are. God neither wants, needs, nor desires slavish or bought service. 
He looks for the kind of service which springs out of a kinship to him. A, a, a unity of nature, it springs out of a unity of nature, a unity of life, a unity of character. The kind of service we see in Christ. That's what God longs for. Now, that all adds up to another point that I think we have to see in the Gospel according to Mark, and it is this, the vital importance of there being spiritual history and experience behind our service. This lies throughout the Gospel according to Mark. God wants service which comes out of genuine heart dealings with himself. He wants service that comes out of deep and sometimes painful experiences. He wants service which has behind it a very real history. No theological seminary can produce that of itself. No Bible college can of itself produce that. No missionary training course can of itself produce spiritual history and experience. How can we get spiritual history and experience in only one way? Through our own relationship to the Lord himself. That's the only way. We have got to have a first-hand, original, direct relationship with the Lord himself. In that way, spiritual history is made. It's not second-hand. You can't live on my history. Often it happens, I might try to live on yours. Well, so-and-so experience, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. But that's not history. Your history might be mine. It may not be yours, but it mine but it may be yours we see this in Mark chapter 1 and uh, verse 17 at the very beginning of this gospel Jesus said to them follow me and I will make you become fishers Amen. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. There are three things there. The first thing is the call. Follow me. Simple, profoundly simple. But, oh, how comprehensive. Do you know those two words are the key to real service? Or you say, just wait, you're always talking about keys. You've said that uh, um, the principle of the cross is the key to that. Right, you follow him. But you won't take many steps before you've found the cross. Isn't that so? Listen, if any man will come after me, let him give up his right to himself, take up his cross and follow me. You can't follow the Lord without it. You can follow a little way, but then you'll go back. <laughs> or again, listen to those words in um, uh, Mark 10, and I think it's verse 29. Just let me see. Yes, here we are. 
Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Lo, we've left everything and followed you. What did it mean? Listen. Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. That's what it means. Peter knew that. Follow me. There's got to be spiritual history and experience behind our service. How can it come? It comes to the call. Follow me. Not follow a system, not follow a society, not follow people. Follow me. The second thing you have here is the obedience of faith. They immediately left all and followed. Listen. In uh, chapter 1, verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And it says, they even left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The obedience of faith. You cannot have any spiritual history and experience without the obedience of faith. So if unbelief is there in your heart, it is the most effective means of blocking spiritual history. Faith is the thing that obeys God and goes forward. And then history is the result. Spiritual history spiritual experience isn't that so why we've had to prove it again and again haven't you in simple ways and then mark the third thing in this uh, verse uh, verse 17 I will make you to become fishers of men I like the way Mark puts it I will make you to become fishers of men here's the training the Lord took them into his training school and that's exactly what he does with you and me he takes you into he takes us into his training school I will make you to become fishers of men here's service in the gospel now mark the word become some people want to become fishers of men overnight Jesus said I will make you to become fish. there's a process in it it's a process you've got to learn by your mistakes you've got to learn by the uh, jolts and the falls as well I will make you to become fishers of men now it doesn't matter where we look in this gospel we'll find this you turn over the page and you find just a little further on in chapter 2 and verse 14 the same thing with Matthew and as he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. It's right through this gospel, this little word, follow. How simple it is. Service, therefore, must always be the result of following him, learning of him, experiencing him, walking in the way which he has already trod, which means there will be a Gethsemane. And there will be a cross. And there will be a tomb. And there will be an open tomb. With a rolled back stone. And there will be an, an ascension. But you've got to follow him. Follow me. We would all like to get to the ascension without the Gethsemane. We would all like to get into the glory without the cross without the tomb well what does this all mean it just means this 
In God's mind, the worker is more important than the work. How many times have you heard that? The worker is more important to God than the work. And he will take the most, go to the most extraordinary lengths with some of his servants because what he's doing in them is of even more importance than the service they're fulfilling. He has a future. Oh, I don't know what that future holds for us. I only know that one day when God is released from this sinful world with all its problems and difficulties and the whole parenthesis of sin is finished with and gone, then God is going to get on with the job and is going to express himself in, in, in ways of service that are un, in, unconceivable. We have, we have so far not reached any understanding of what he's going to do. And that's what he's preparing us for, uh, for that kind of service. Well, I think we will close with two things. The first is this, that authority, the word authority, is linked with this matter of service in the Gospel according to Mark again and again and again. I will just read you very swiftly. The, first of all, in connection with the Lord Jesus, chapter 1 and uh, verse 22. And he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Verse 27, they were all amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching. With authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Chapter uh, 2, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. You will find this word authority is linked with being a servant of the Lord, with the service of God in this gospel. Uh, you will see that it is a question that it is not... Authority is a question really... Well, how can I put it? True authority is not in within the servant himself. It is the authority of the master that is in the servant. Get it? Any other kind of authority means autocracy, authoritarianism. True authority is the authority of God himself, the master, the Lord, vested in the servant. Thus it's not the servant's will, it's the master's will. It's not the servant's purpose, it's the master's purpose. It's not the servant's work, it's the master's work. It's not the servant's authority, it's the master's authority. Therein lies the authority. So when you take up Again, uh, the Gospel according to Mark, you look in chapter 3, verse 14. And he appointed twelve to be with him, and, he, and to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. Again, chapter 6, verse 7. Here it is again. He calls to him the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirit. They got the authority as well. 
I think that's quite extraordinary. And then note it's with him. He wanted them to be with him in this matter. That's the secret of authority. And of course you've got it in chapter 16, the last verses of the Gospel according to Mark, where he commissions us to go out and preach the Gospel to the whole creation and then says, you shall do this, you shall drink poison, you shall take up snakes, you shall speak in other tongues, they shall not harm you, you shall speak in other tongues, you shall do this, you shall do that. These are the signs that will follow. It's authority. And you've got it again in chapter 3 and verse 27, oft quoted in prayer but rarely practiced or understood. Chapter 3 and verse 27 no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder the, his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Oh, what a word that is. Now you see again and again people are trying to find authority within themselves and that's the mistake. That's why people can't pray authority to flay. Because you won't find authority within yourself. God will never make you authoritative. It's his authority the authority of the name of Jesus. That's the point. It's the authority of the name of Jesus that you bear as a servant of the Lord. Well, that's covered rather a lot. The other point is the word gospel. It is interesting to note that this word gospel is used in Mark more, relatively speaking, than in any, in any of the other gospels. In Matthew... In 28 chapters, it's used five times. In Luke, in 24 chapters, it's used four times. In the Gospel, according to John, the word gospel does not come once. In the 16 small chapters of Mark, it comes eight times. So, really, it's something that is being emphasized and even more so when you understand it, that it begins it's the only gospel that begins with the words the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God and it's the only gospel that adds at the end in chapter 16 he commanded them to go out and preach the gospel Matthew says make disciples of all nations Mark says preach the gospel to the whole creation to every creature and then it says in the last verse of the gospel and they went everywhere preaching this is the only gospel that adds the word gospel in two occasions that we find in Matthew and Luke. The first is, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If any man holds on to his life, he will lose it. But if any man loses his life for my sake and the gospels, that's added. And nowhere else and the gospels service and again you've got it where it says anyone who's left father, mother, children, lands, houses and the rest for my sake and the gospels says Mark in uh, Matthew he doesn't say and the gospel what does that all mean? well what does it mean? Surely it means just this, that this service we've been called into is service to do with the saving, the saving purpose of
of God. What a purpose. One day, of course, we're going to be called into another kind of service. But now we're in this service which is to do with the proclamation of the gospel, the saving grace of God to the ends of the earth. Well, there we are. The key to this gospel is service. How I wish that we could get hold of it, really get hold of it. How little authority there is. How little anointing there is. How little power there is when you really cut real power, when you really think of it. And here is the key to it. It's not that God is slow. It's rather that we are not prepared to follow him wholly. The key to all this is the laying down of our own life. Well, if God challenges you on that matter, may God give you grace to face up to it. For if you don't, you will turn to a pillar of salt. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, when we see the kind of service that thou dost desire, there's not one of us that doesn't come short. Lord, none of us come anywhere near that kind of service. And when we understand, Lord, that thou art not wanting a kind of dutiful service, that's just somehow got through but thou art wanting and desiring and indeed will only accept that which is willingly entered into and joyfully entered into. Lord, we don't know where to put ourselves. We can only pray that in thy grace and in thy mercy thou wouldst cleanse us all and that thou wouldst, Lord, release something of this kind of love which is thyself in all our hearts if there has to be a letting go if there has to be a surrender if there has to be a capitulation Lord if there has to be a laying aside of our own interest Lord win this battle in every life we pray and help every one of us to know what it is to walk the path the master trod we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.